This is the Decibel Geek Podcast with Aaron Camaro and Chris Sinzak. Yes, it's finally here. My favorite time of the year. It's Christmas in July, and this is the Decibel Geek Podcast. I'm Aaron Camaro, joined as always by my oh-so-patriot rock and rolling friend, Chris Sinzak. What's up, my man? Oh, man, too much is up, but I'm excited we're here for July, finally. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I hear you, but man... This is the time of year I love. Like I said, I look forward to it all year round, you know. We can't, we're not a KISS podcast, you know. There's plenty of KISS podcasts out there that you can listen to all year round. Yeah. But we love KISS so much, and we thought, you know, at one point there was a little conversation that maybe this almost could have been a KISS podcast. But we said, no, we want to keep our, we want to we want to cast that wide net. Sure. You know, we want to play all kinds of cool rock and roll and talk about all kinds of cool bands. But for one month out of the year, in case you didn't know, it's all dedicated to KISS. And, you know, we kind of had an awesome prelude to that last week. Yeah, last week, uh, in a way, you know, counted. Yeah, Because we we made sure we uh, we bugged Desmond Child with plenty of KISS-related stuff. And I know so many people dug it. So many great responses to it. And I want to mention, um, you know, everything about this month is about KISS. But, of course, the intro music that you'll hear on each episode is our featured artist. So we want to showcase... Uh, younger, newer acts that uh, we believe in, and they're you know carrying on the right spirit. These are bands we, we that Kiss probably influenced. Yeah, and we think you'll believe in them too. Yeah. So the one that you heard on the intro is a band called Screaming Eagles, and we've featured them before in the past. But uh, I've stayed in touch with their management, and they sent me a copy of their new album that's coming out in the next week. And as you heard in the intro, it's pretty kick-ass. And nice. uh, Screaming Eagles, check yeah, it out. The new album's called Stand Up and Be Counted. And uh, go to the show notes for today's show, and you'll find out more information. And you're going to want to. And all these people, uh, we were talking about Desmond Child last week, and yeah. the Facebook blew up, and the messages blew up, and everybody was so proud of us and said we did such a great job. And I think so, too. I'm proud of us, yeah, too. And, I, and I'm so, like you said, honored that Desmond Child took the time oh, totally. to sit down and talk to us like that. And it was such a blast, you know, yeah. and, and thanks to Desmond and -hmm. thanks to our geeks of the week everybody that shared it this is a long list you want you want to help with this yeah we were we were overwhelmed with love for this this episode and and we were happy to share it with all of you so uh you want to just go back and forth on yeah let's rapid fire this bad boy all right am I going first you go first all right Manuel Galati Hector Morin Brian Byron Salzano Keith Doyle Cindy Hitson Dave Shirt Steve True Matt Bradshaw Marco Tudich Matt Ashcraft Susan Dufton Dwayne T. Jones Dietrich Hardwick Franklin Jackson Hudson Enoch Sarion Bob Fallon Peter Vassallo Denny Smith Michael Bushnell 80s Pitcher House uh, Charles N. Waring <laughs> uh, John Laster Mike Stewart Jason Jason Spencer Wetmore Ryan Sessions James Owen uh, Kenny Younger Miguel Nunez Alan Tate Tim Burkett Craig Wallace Naveed Mall Scott Lowell Joseph Ciambelli Orn Anderson Mark DeVatimo. Mike Blount. P.J. Brown. J.T.B.'s Groovy Record Room. Jay Arnold. Chad Wagner. Shane Abair. Michael Bartley. Joe Lescon. David Alpazar. Aaron Baker. Stephen Kirsch. Joe Royland. Sit and Spin with Joe. Ian Wadley of the Rock and Metal Combat Podcast. Yeah. Darren Parkin. Justin A. Six. Uh, Greg McLone. Wally Norton. Billy Hardaway. Vic Barrick. Derek Novak. David Glenn. Kai Velmer. Rob Webb. Warren Money. Andrew Jacobs. Todd Cunningham, Chad Pollock, Mark Alden Taylor, James McElhinney, uh, Matt Sieberson, Joey Vancieri, The Mooger Fooger, Daniel Chaput, uh, Sean Franklin, R.C. Campbell, uh, Music Mags and Wax, Stealth, Jack Broad, Jason Mayar, Paulo Thomas, 
Colin Francis. Uh, Mikhail Burrell. TJ Cullen. Sven Isaacson. All over the podcast. The Renegade. Adam Cox. Darren Hellowell. Steve. Steve, the rocking donkey. Nick Rose. Jesus Chrysler, yeah. S- Snark at the Moon. Pep Pep. Lonnie Carr. De La Torre. Ernesto Aguiar. Uh, e. Altamirano. Loquillo Panama. The Double Stop Podcast. And Hoops. And Hoops. Man, how cool is that? Those are our friends right there. We love you very, very, very much. Yeah, and if you like the, this week for the beginning of Christmas in July with our special guest, Big John Hart, just share on Facebook and retweet on Twitter, and we'll na- read your name next week. What a trip to have this guy on the show, man. Has Big John Hart ever been on a podcast before? No, never. Exclusive. Decibel Geek, Christmas yep. in July. You know what else is going on? The Decibel Geek website. And Christmas in July already started. It started on July 1st. They got the jump on us. Yeah, there's great some articles. Awesome stuff. Awesome articles going on at decibelgeek.com, all about the world's hottest band, Kiss. And you're going to check it out there. And while you're there, hey, if you're going to do some Amazon shopping, you want to buy some Kiss records, you got to celebrate Kissmas in July. There's all kinds of cool Kiss stuff you can buy. And the best way to do it is to go through the link at decibelgeek.com. It's going to take you to Amazon. You're going to do all your normal shopping. And what they're going to do is because you came through us and you're a rock and roller like we are, they're going to kick back a little bit of cash to the show and help us out it's not a lot but a little bit adds up when everybody's doing it and man have a lot of people been doing it and getting some pretty cool stuff on amazon yeah some of the stuff that was bought this past week on amazon through our link was an hp stream mini desktop for 179 dollars see that's what i'm talking about that adds up a couple of dvds the who live at shea stadium in 82 and also uh the decline of western civilization collection yeah that's new that just came out i'm looking forward to seeing that uh, health and personal care, MHP, expel maximum strength diuretic capsules. Somebody's working out. Okay, good deal. Uh, music, Kiss Asylum Remastered was purchased. Yeah, Richie, nice. Richie Blackmore's Rainbow Remastered. Oh, yeah. Fozzy Happenstance. Chris Jericho. Ghost BC, If You Have Ghost. Eden's Curse, Symphony of Sin. The Sword, Warp Riders. I need to check more of their stuff out. Sword's cool. I like them. Uh, Memorial Clover Z versus Kiss. Yumino Yuki Yoni Satamina. <laughs> that was pretty good. I know. And I think we nailed a lot of the names today in the Geek of the Week. Maybe we should do that more often. That was pretty good. That was fun. Hey, another thing going on while you're at decibelgeek.com, you got to check out our friend Daryl Albers, and he's over. He's got it going on at HK Collectibles Inc. And that's at Amazon as well. It's this mm-hmm. huge store. It's got all kinds of kick-ass stuff in it that you're going to love. You're going to thank us for turning you on to this. So you go to our link at decibelgeek.com and you go right to HK Collectibles Inc. And we're all celebrating Kissmas in July together. He's got a whole bunch of classic Kiss concert tickets. Among them are tickets from a July 24th, 1979 show at Madison Square Garden. He's got Lexington, Kentucky from 78 and a whole lot more. Just go to decibel geek.com click on the hk collectibles inc link and check out thousands of awesome collectibles he's got it kissmas in july get your stuff so we're ready to kick this thing off yeah we are oh man big john hart you know who big john hart is you know if you are a big kiss fan and you think back to a lot of all those old pictures picture the guy the big dude with the mustache he's reaching out to grab your mm-hmm. camera that's the dude. That's who yes. we're talking to today. Yeah, he and he was there from 75 through 83 and then worked with yeah. him on and off for other years. And I have to give a special thanks to John's son, Brian Big Boy Hart. Nice. Who uh, friended me on Facebook, and that's how I found out he, that John was his dad, and that's how it all happened. That's beautiful the way it works. Podcasting. you got to love it. So here it is. Kissmas in July. Oh, man, this is so cool. You guys are going to love it. Can't think of a better way to kick it off than with Big John Hart. <laughs> 
doing this. Yeah. I, I'm really surprised. Well, I appreciate it. You guys helped me out. I mean, the least I could do is, is at least investigate it. And, you know, it's not a harmful thing. Nah. Uh, like I, I told uh, Chris in the beginning, when the first time I was ever contacted about doing anything re outside of KISS or regarding KISS, mm-hmm. I was very weary, you know, or leery, rather, would be the correct word. Yeah. Because, um, you know, I spent years protecting them from various things, not just, you know, uh, uh, bad things, but in overall, the, the, the makeup and all that kind of stuff and pictures. So, you know, I, I developed uh, a big uh, protection area in my head about them. Sure. And, and we are friends because we grew, we were approximately the same age. You know, we grew up on the road together, uh, heading towards manhood. I mean, we were all, when I started with them, I think I was 22 or 23 years old. Maybe a little bit more, but not much. Yeah. Uh, maybe 25, yeah. And, um, you know, Paul and Ace were the same age as me. Gene's a, two, a year older or two years older. Peter has always been the oldest. He was, he was like three or four years older. Mm-hmm. But we're all still relatively in the same group. Mm-hmm. So as things came about, not only in, in the real world, but in the rock world, we were also growing with it. We didn't... Uh, you know, nobody knew where, where anything was going then. It was just pretty much new. And we knew, uh, the only thing that was evident was that there's a, a large bit of popularity and uh, there's money. Yeah. You know, if, if you do it correctly. Mm-hmm. And if you, even if you were shabby at it, you made a few dollars back then. Yeah. Because that's the only thing there was. I mean, I've had talks like this with my wife uh, when we were talking about, you know, when we met, when I was, we were growing together and all that kind of thing. You know, there was so much emphasis put on music because we didn't have an internet. We had movies, but, you know, they were staggered out in time. They, don't, they didn't mass produce them like they do today. Yeah. So, you know, you'd have a couple of releases around either Christmas time, you'd have a couple of releases for the summertime. But if you've seen them, then it's pretty much played out. Right. And, you know, music was was a thing. Everything was emphasis. Plus, we grew up with, with uh, you know, the pirate radio stations, which I really believe increased all of rock and roll. I mean, it, it made it a thing because it, they, they turned it, by them being pirates and the FCC getting all upset about it, it made it important yeah. because they didn't want us to hear it. Right. You know, a lot of times when uh, we would go out to do photo sessions, especially if it was you know near the street or on the street, especially in America, uh, where we both spoke the same language, you would we would... Uh, I was a bad guy. Yeah. You know, the, the bands yeah. never wanted to be perceived as, no, I can't do this. Right. So when I knew time was up and we had to move on to either the next location or whatever may be on the day's agenda, it was my turn and my job to, okay, let's go, guys. Right. You know, and, and you know, lead, chain, lead Gene by his chain or whatever, you know, drag him out, monster along, things like that. Mm-hmm. So, and, we- uh, you know, it worked well. Right. So we um and either you had kind of shared a little bit with me on the phone the other night about this, but for people that don't know, how did how did you get your start with working with them and how did it come about? Well, originally one of the fellows that worked for Kiss hired me to you know, off a off a ticket line uh, to work locally at a place called Roosevelt Stadium in Jersey City. I was born and raised in New Jersey, and um, they also had a place called the Capitol Theater, which later on became a very big rock hall. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I had been previously in in bands and all, and had aspirations, but I was more of a realist than than most people at the time. You know, everybody was a garage band or a basement band or whatever. 
And, you know, with all these people trying to make a music business, you know, my chances are slim to none, and Slim just walked out. So I figured it was better to try to work for bands. But I didn't know how to get into that particular field. So this opportunity came along to work in this concert area. So I took it. And then uh, the fellow's name was Rick Stewart. He himself went to work for KISS. Right. And I was coming, I came back from, we did a three-day festival up in uh, uh, someplace in New York State, and, and we had one of them Indian in like You know, it was like outside of Rochester or something. Mm-hmm. But it was up there pretty far. I had flown back from that. But before I flown back, Rick had called me up there and said, look, when you get home, uh, Kirsten's playing tonight. I want you to come down and meet him because they're looking to hire some people. So I said, okay. So I got home and freshened up as best I could and went to the show. And after the show, you know, I met them at the hotel. And originally, I was going to be hired for the European tour. That's what was on the table at that time. Mm-hmm. And then, I guess, Rick or whoever, also the, the manager at the time, the, the road manager, was a fellow named J.R. Smalling. And he had worked for the Capitol Theater in those areas as well. Right on. So he knew who I was. Mm-hmm. So it wound up, I, I, I was picked up immediately, put on the tour, you know, and they were still openers then. They weren't the headliners. Mm-hmm. And this was during that time where uh, I know Gene has made the statement where you know uh, Black Sabbath didn't want to tour with them. Yeah, we were the opener for Black Sabbath for I think it was like three or four shows for maybe even a week long, weeks long worth of shows. Wow! And that could have been five days over two weeks. Who knows? But after that, I mean, we got up. You know, we, we came to the show the next the next day or whatever. We were the headliners because they pulled out. And, you know, their their statement was they did not want to follow Kiss on stage. Well, who because does, half, you know? half or more of the audience would leave. Yeah, I can believe it. When Kiss was done. Yeah. They didn't really, you know, they weren't, I mean, now you find people who beg to differ with that. But I've seen it. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, Black Sabbath was a huge fan, far sure. none. Absolutely. But the audience at that time was slightly different. We They weren't all metalheads. You know, they were looking for their own brand of music or what have you. You know, Ozzy was kind of dark and heading darker. Some people didn't want all of that stuff. And Kiss gave him a completely different thing. Yeah, it's more like in a party. In my eyes, more you know, like a, more it, a party aside from just yeah. the showman stuff. Yeah. Um, well, it's, well, let me ask you this, because, you know, you worked with them for so many years, but what was your what was your initial impression of the band? Were you taken aback when you first saw them? Well, I wasn't taken aback, but it wasn't my cup of tea. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I, I, didn't, I had never seen them up until the night I'd seen them. I had heard about them. Uh, and, you know, they, they were into that, I put them in the same area, although not the same music genre, as uh, the New York Dolls, it was sort of flashy and glammy and things like that. But, you know, I was looking for a job, I was hungry to work. So, you know, none of those things really mattered back then. You didn't work for a favorite, you worked for whoever you could. Because, again, I go back to my original statement, it's about the emphasis being important. Everybody talked about the music. Everybody wanted to be a part of music somehow. I mean, that's where all these people became discophobes and, uh, or discophiles, rather. Would it? I mean, I knew people who could tell you who played on an album, you know, who the backups were, mm-hmm. who came in as, as a guest, you know, all that type of thing. Where it was recorded and, and all that kind of thing. Well, I, I never had that like type that. of, of uh, interest, but that's how interesting it was to a lot of people. It was these things they had to know. Right. Totally. You know, it was almost like uh, baseball stats. 
Sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I see that totally. Yeah, we have, we have a few friends that are that way too. And now, so you, so you, uh-huh. you saw them when they, you saw the transition from opener into being a big band. So. Oh yeah. You had a front. I row can seat remember. Well, when when the transition happened to where they became headliners, which is right before we went to Europe, and that was when they went to Europe for the first time, and, and that's a whole other story. When we came back from Europe and they were we were headlining and they were starting to play arenas. That that started to come into play where we were playing bigger than five thousand seat auditoriums. We were playing in bigger places, right? You know, and we play uh, places like Cobo Hall yeah. became the norm rather than the exception. And I can remember us following Rod Stewart into places, not you know right behind him, but you know a week or so behind. And you look at the uh, the attention that was given to him, and we were selling as many tickets, if not or if not more. Than, than he was, and you know the, the press, the rock press didn't give too much about this at all yeah. at that time. Now they cut off their arms for him, right. but back yeah. then they wouldn't even give him a tumble. Well, so the mystique, but the mystique thing was a was a big thing early on with not letting people see him without makeup. Was was Bill a coin? Yeah, that, of, was uh, um, was Bill a coin a they, big part of that? Well, Bill was a part of that because he understood the value as the interest part. Mm-hmm. Again, it goes back to you know similar things to what I said about no. Well, if you if you don't know, I I used to meet people that would ask me, did I ever see them with their makeup off? <laughs> oh, I bet all the time. <laughs> all the time, and I was like, uh, yeah, I really have. And <laughs> and I was sort of that would take me back, like, whoa, dude, don't you realize this is makeup? Right, you know, it comes off. <laughs> but, but they, you know, it, I mean, the mystique was working. Sure, because deep and, down they're asking it, and, are they really? And, and of that? course, that that made it harder because there was people who figured out the other side of that. Well, let's get a picture or something where they're uh, naked, more as it would be. You know, they have no no makeup on. Mm-hmm. So only one time when I worked for the band did we get caught, and that was in Europe on that first tour, and the guy was a zillion miles away. He must have had the biggest telephoto lens they made <laughs> at the time. Because we were coming out of an airport, I think it was in Finland or one of those places, a northern northern place, mm-hmm. Sweden maybe, and uh, he got us. And not very well because the band, you know, they were happened to be walking downstairs, so when they leaned their heads forward, their hair sort of covered up most of their face anyway. Yeah. So they, the guy never got a really clear shot. He could, you know, you can sort of figure it out now after the band has been seen without. But, you know, it was still a tough pick on his part who was Boy, who. He was trying. But that was, yeah, but, you know, that was the thing. And, you know, there was only, there was only so much we could do. I mean, we had just gotten there, so I didn't even get a chance to talk to anybody. Mm-hmm. You know, so that that, that was already out. That, that That's the way to do it. Yeah. And, you know, of course, throughout that, the, the early years, it was, you know, we were buying film and, mm-hmm. and things of that nature because we never know if they really got them or not. We bought a lot of film so along what, the way. What happened with all that film? Did it just get thrown in the garbage? Oh, we destroyed it. We destroyed it right there on the spot. Oh. We never kept any of it. Yeah. Because, <laughs> well, in fairness to the to the people, I didn't want them thinking I'm taking a film and we're going to profit off. It. Sure, yeah, because there was a demand you know, it's for like, that. look, you know, you're not supposed to do that. I'll give you the, the value of the role. Yeah, and I take the role and just just rip it out right in front of them. Did you have people that? You would know, and then I would take and throw it away. Were there people that would refuse? Very rarely. Yeah. Very rarely. There was more of us than there was of them. Yeah. <laughs> so we always had the power of persuasion that way. Right. Uh, and, and and you know my staff. When when they they really started to become, you know, into that huge portion, we had one person for everybody, and they they got pretty uh, 
pretty clever about things, you know, because you, you can't be fighting everybody, and you don't want to start a fight, really, mm-hmm. right? Because it's strictly a, it's a fan thing, more or less, more or less. But usually, by the cut of the clothes of the persons, we can figure out whether they were a true fan or they were a profiteer, right? right. You know. Speaking of physical stuff, I know Aaron had a question about a story that we had read about in a book about Ace Fraley about something involving a jacket that you had to go back and retrieve from a bar. Well, it wasn't me. Eddie went back for it. Oh, was I, it Eddie Berlandis? I, it was. It was in. Uh, it was in um, St. Louis, but the but the problem took place in a place called East St. Louis. Oh yeah. Which, <laughs> as I gather, is not that savory of a place. No, yeah. that's where Ferguson is. What happened, I was sitting at the, the hotel that we had at the time, had some kind of Polynesian restaurant. I went down there for dinner. So I was sipping on a Mai Tai or something, you know, and and uh, Gene and Paul already checked on me. They were staying in. Ace and Peter, I hadn't heard from, but Peter usually sleeps. And Ace, ah, you don't, he, he wasn't an early riser as a rule. But Eddie comes down and said, look, uh, the two cops are here. And when you two cops from St. Louis, they treated us pretty well. So they take us there. I mean, they took me and Ace and uh, I think Peter down to the gun range. Gene and Paul went into that. So we went to the gun range and got to shoot machine guns and all that kind of cool shit. Nice. Nice. So I have two policemen and Flame uh, Rosie, who worked for the band, who worked for Peter. Mm-hmm. And Eddie said, look, I'll go with Ace. You know, you stay here and cover the monitor. I said, yeah, no problem. So they left. I'm going, okay, there's four people for two. Two of them are policemen. This shouldn't be a problem. And right. it was a Sunday night, I believe. So I wasn't anticipating all hell to break loose. <laughs> a short time later, Eddie comes back in, you know, an hour, hour and a half. You know, I'm just finishing up dinner and going to go upstairs. Eddie comes walking back into the, the restaurant, and I could tell by the look on his face he was very distressed. Oh, no. And Eddie reminded me of the Campbell Soup Boy. You know, he had to really break a question in rosy cheeks. That's true. <laughs> and, and I'm looking at him going, uh, there's something wrong here. I said, Eddie, what's up? He said, oh, man, you ain't going to believe it. I said, well, is everybody okay? Yeah, but. I said, but what? He said, well, the two cops are not doing so well. I said, what happened? He said, well, come on, I'll tell you. So I go upstairs to see the band members, mm-hmm. and they're okay. So my guys did their job. The uh, two cops were without their pistols. One's got a gash on his head. Damn. So man, the obvious is, answered, is asked, what the hell happened? <laughs> Turns out, and this didn't come out right away in the wash, mm-hmm. turns out that these two cops had a beef with somebody that either owned that club or managed that club where they went. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. So they shouldn't have been going there in the first place. In the second place, I guess what was going on was they walked in with the band, so they wanted, it was like, you know, the big swinging uh, uh, man's department. Uh, like, okay, you know, look who we're with. Right. right. So that caused the problem. So with that, you know, the ensuing battle happened. My guys didn't know anything about it. The band obviously didn't know anything about it. Dang. They got the band out. They got, uh, you know, the guy, the cops out as well. And then, uh, of course, they ran for the hills. We got a limo. They all jumped in the pile in the limo and took off. <laughs> uh, Ace forgot his jacket. You know, they didn't grab it. So Eddie went back for it the next day because he knew exactly who to talk to and where it was. So we didn't have a problem getting it back. But uh, and and that's how we found out a lot of the information I just divulged because we didn't know, you know, that these cops shouldn't have went in here, that there was a beef going on, all that kind of stuff. So that's the found story. Found it out that day. 
this story that's all blown up, but yeah. it's, I got to imagine you've seen stuff that was 10 times crazier than that in, in hair-raising well, yeah, situations. Well, yeah, but, but even at the time, I mean, that was hard enough. Right. You know, you're still going back into uncharted waters. Eddie went back because he knew who it was, right. and I sent Rosie with him. So the two of them knew exactly who they're dealing with, and they knew who to watch for. And, you know, I don't remember if there was any money paid. There might have been, but we got the jacket back either way. No, there was no more knuckle punches thrown. Right. Now, hmm. um, you so you were, I mean, you were kind of with the, anytime they had to do a TV appearance or stuff like that, you were pretty much with them all the time, weren't you? All the time. 20, we, we were with them on tour 24-7, off tour almost 24-7. Yeah. Uh, when they were recorded, we would work at, we would work with two of us, worked at the recording studio, both me and Eddie. Mm. And, you know, we, we were the uh, caterers of the day, and anything else that needed to be done, we'd do. And if they wanted to go out for a while, while they were recording or afterwards, usually it didn't happen, but sometimes it did just to get take a break from what was going on. Mm-hmm. You know, so instead of having to be called up, we were there. A good friendship, which, you know, there's good days and bad days, you know, some days. Uh, we were all a little rough around the edges because we didn't really care for what we were doing at the time. Because it, it, it wears on you, mm-hmm. you know, because everybody has different interests. They're trying to accomplish different things within their own life and what we were doing either in the studio or on the road. So it could be a little, te- a little bit tedious sometimes. The, one of the most legendary TV things that they did was the uh, Paul Lind Halloween special. Oh, um, yeah. What, what are your memories from <laughs> that day? I remember lots of things from that. First of all, we're on a secured studio lot. Peter's costume gets stolen. Oh, no. Really? Oh, yeah. Took us a day and a half to find it. We found it through the help of a local PD and uh, and people that worked at the studio. There was a kid who lived, like, literally across the street from the studio. It was a Kiss fan. Who knew? <laughs> wow. He found out the band was there. He knew how we, I mean, he lives across the street. A crafty kid. And this yeah. is, well, early 1970s. So security wasn't, you know, on anything wasn't where he is today. <laughs> so I'm sure he knew all the little nooks and crannies and ins and outs when he wanted to. Yeah. <laughs> and how to get in there on the back lot because nobody's filming back there. I mean, all that kind of thing. <laughs> so he got in there, and normally the cases would be locked if we were at a venue, uh, like, you know, a performance venue. But since we were working there for two or three weeks, the wardrobe people, I forget who it was at the time, left the cases open. Right. Because, you know, you air out stuff, and, you know, again... You feel you're in a relatively secure area. I mean, right. if they shot down with the wind and things like that, we should be okay. And Johnny Carson so we shot there. You know, so you would figure everything is fine. However, that wasn't the case. And it made them miserable. Really? They weren't oh, excited yeah. about it? And I'll explain to you why. If you've never had any uh, contact with television or movie production, it's all about the production. It has nothing to do with the actors or the actresses. Uh, as far as their wants and needs and their little, uh, you know, whatevers it, as, outside of their dressing room. Mm-hmm. They want uh, 10 bottles of Dom Perignon, they get it. If they want, uh, you know, uh, all the peas pulled out of the pod, they get it. But once they walk outside that door, they're subject to the unions and what's going on during that day and what the director is called for. Yeah. So... Every morning, bright and early at 5.30, we'd all be up, get as ready as we could, pour them into a car, and off we'd go to the, to the studio, mm. where they would then get into makeup. <laughs> Not costume, just makeup. Mm. And then they'd have to hang around like that until the director said, okay, I need them guys. Wow. And then they would be given they would be given an hour's notice, 
to get their costumes on, get ready, and come out and do their bit. Well, we were there for a good two weeks doing this show. It took forever for them to get into the, their parts, you know, and and it, you know, we had some disgruntled campers there when we found out how this was all done. But you muddle through it, but it, but it was an eye-opener because they were used to, by that time, they were the big wigs. They were the headliners. So, you know, usually they walk in, they take over there in command, and things are being done. That's not the way it is on TV or movie sets. No. So I'm guessing, it, that, I'm guessing it wasn't that much fun for them on uh, the set of Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Park either. No, but they at least knew by then what to expect. Right. So it made it a little bit easier. A little bit. <laughs> yeah. So did you get to talk to Paul Lind at all on that special? Oh, yeah. yeah. All of those people, the, the uh, actors and actresses around there, were fabulous people. I mean, you know, Tim Conway, Paul Lind, uh, they were very interactive and, and, and funny as hell. Uh, and um, who did I meet on there? Uh, the, the, the famous witch from The Wizard of Oz, Margaret Hamilton. Come on, Margaret. I've always wanted to meet Kiss. <laughs> Hi, fellas. <laughs> Yeah, that's what I've always wanted. Four kisses on the first date. <laughs> well, your friend sure has a weird sense of humor. Does your mother know what you're doing? Margaret, you haven't introduced me to your friends. Oh, forgive me. This is Ace, this is Jean, this is Peter, and this is Paul. Oh, I love a good religious group. <laughs> I can take one look at you four, and I can tell you how you got your name and how you got your act. You had a fight, and your mother's told you to kiss and make up. <laughs> and your makeup is something else. How long does it take you to put it on? We don't wear makeup. You know, and she was just a darling, you know. She'd come over and said hello to everybody, and, and, you know, everybody tried to show an interest in the band, even though I'm sure that, you know, three-quarters of them didn't know who the hell Kiss was because it's just the times. Right. You know, a lot of these people were, were much older. But they knew they were a rock band and all that kind of stuff, and they really, uh, they were quite into it, you know? Yeah. That's cool. Um, yeah, it, it was a really nice experience from that end. Right. You know, there's a lot of bands that I came across that wouldn't give you two cents for the fans. You know, they were very uh, very cold towards them. I mean, they realized they needed them to a point, but it wasn't, they didn't want to go out, they didn't want to go out and talk to them. I wanted to ask you... Um... The uh, another new another TV appearance that and it's, it's cool to talk to you because uh, as a fan I grew up you know collecting like the bootleg videos of the band and like all the news reports and stuff and you would show right. up pretty regularly on these things I think you were on this one too the the uh, trip to Buffalo to pour the blood into the ink for the Marvel comic oh yeah me and Eddie did that or as uh, Eddie and I I forget correct pronoun uh, yeah we went there and. Uh, um, it was kind of interesting. We we weren't sure what all was going to happen mm-hmm. and how big of a turnout we got. We got a pretty good turnout, but the band, we did the makeup at the hotel, so they were already dressed, so that wasn't a problem. And then they went inside the uh, the facility, and, uh, you know, they, they had a sanitary room set up and, and a, a nurse or a phlebotomist and a doctor, just in case. And they drew the blood, you know, from each individual and then uh, walked over and shot it in there. <laughs> which was kind of odd, but, you know. Kiss is going to have its own comic book soon, featuring the four strangely attired and hairy fellows to be printed by Arcata Graphics, printed in, if you believe everything you're told, in real Kiss blood. 
To that end, Kiss flew into Buffalo today, yes, with a plane, a Brinks truck bringing a little white box in which were, you guessed it, four vials of real Kiss blood, which were summarily dumped into some printing ink for the old comic book. Isn't that wonderful? And Gene, you know, he was instrumental in that whole deal because he was a very big comic book fan. Right. He loved comic books. That was part of the way he learned English. He immersed himself in that and television. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's how he really learned English. Right. And, uh, you know, so this was, you know, he knew who Stan Lee was before I knew who Stan Lee was. <laughs> so it was pretty cool. Big John, I got to think, you know, for being a guy that was in charge of protecting the hottest band in the world, you've been in some pretty hair-raising situations. In the uh, line of duty, what's the scariest thing that you've ever had to go through in protecting KISS? Uh, two things. One was in the States. The other was in Europe. Okay. In the States, uh, we were contacted by the FBI through our office that um, because we had continually got received um, letters uh, with a threat on call. And you know, the first couple, you know, he would get, they would all get, you know, some kind of thing like that every once in a while. And, you know, you, you would take it with a grain of salt. But this was consistent. It was coming from the same area. But you could tell it was written in the same tone. So we contacted the FBI, and they got back to us. And I believe it was a kid out of Tennessee. If I'm not, I'm not positive, but I believe so. It wasn't me. I'm and <laughs> it was, it was, and, and all it was about was his girlfriend. Oh, his girlfriend his was girlfriend in love with the star was child. on Paul, and I guess maybe she threatened to break up with him, or you know, something along those lines. Uh-oh. <laughs> but the reason, to me, you never knew where it was coming from. You know, yeah. until, we, until the FBI got involved and they narrowed it down. And, you know, up until that point, you know, from the time I was informed until we got it resolved, everywhere we went, you're on the lookout for something or somebody. Oh, I suppose, yeah. You always got to be you know? aware. And the other thing in the States that corresponded with that, because we also had to delve into that, was uh, the very religious people, whether mm-hmm. the, you know, Bible Belt people or, you know, born-again Christians, what have yeah. you. Mm-hmm. They, the anybody who thinks they could kill you in the name of God, I have a problem with. Yeah, I agree. Whether it's whether it's the people that we're currently dealing with overseas, or people that I just mentioned, you know, God doesn't give you a right or a license to kill in His name. That's true. I couldn't find that in anybody's Bible. Right. And we were in Beaumont, Texas. I won't, I never forget this. And uh, it was after sound check, and usually the band goes back to the hotel. But I think the hotel was far enough where I didn't feel like going back or there's something good for dinner or something. I don't know. They all stayed. So somebody said to me, where's Gene? I need to talk to him. One of the texts. So I said, in the picture. He said, no, nah, he ain't in there. So I'm like, where the hell did he go? So I started wandering around looking for those local haunts, which is, you know, hanging out somewhere doing something. <laughs> I wound up walking past the door that led to the outside and it was open. I walked out there. Here's Gene and Paul. Holding court with all these people that were out there protesting them, you know, nice and Satan service type stuff. Yeah. And that scared the pants off me because those are the type of people who are very unpredictable. Right. Look at the fellow who just shot these people in South Carolina. That's true. He right? thought he had the right to do that because he's a supporter of the of the Confederate uh, Army and 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 that situation and thought people should be dead. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was people scared, and they're not in their right minds. Were Gene and Paul out there arguing with them or trying to plead their case? Well, or? no, they were, they were trying to understand how 
these people uh, thought that they were nice to Satan's service. Yeah. And, you know, it's like it's like arguing white pledge. It ain't going to happen. Right. They have their own opinion before they ever showed up. Right. Why these guys are the devil. Mm-hmm. You know, whether it be the makeup or the, the way the makeup looks or uh, the fact that Gene liked to use the, uh, the, the, the fire-breathing technique and all that kind of stuff. We really never, never got a straight answer out of them. But you weren't going to change their mind either. Yeah, yeah. true. But at least out of that, nothing happened. When I got them back inside, I said, don't you ever do that again. <laughs> I said, if you want to go talk to them, let me know. Yeah. Don't walk out there on your own. Wow. Yeah, yeah, because you, you, that's your job. And then the only them. other time that, that I was genuinely concerned, we played in Italy uh, in uh, Bologna at a uh, bicycle stadium. Uh-huh. And I forget which tour this was, but it was all the originals. And uh, I think it was, I want to say 80. So maybe it wasn't only there. I think Eric was there then. Yeah. I think. But I'm not positive. But anyway, we were over there, and uh, that afternoon I met with the promoter and his representative about security and security matters, stuff like that. And, um, yeah, it had, to be bef- it had to be Eric because after that we went to Australia, and I know Eric was in the band when we went to Australia. Mm-hmm. Anyway, we're over there, and... Uh, the promoter says to me, he said, well, I'm going to need 75 passes outside of the number he would normally get. And I said, may I ask why? He said, well, we have these people here called the uh, Red Brigade, Rojo Brigade. And uh, the last show I did here was with Santana. They asked for the same thing they're asking me for today. They didn't get it, so they burned down the stage. Oh, wow. Now, at that time, and I don't know how real or true this is, uh, Italy is a pretty crazy place anyway. There's a lot of hot tempers, that, that Italian blood, and 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 uh, when they're talking to each other, you think they're wanting to kill each other. <laughs> you know, just the way they are. Yeah. But anyway, um, there was no right. There was, I was told they didn't have a right to public assembly. Like here, we can go protest on the street. You know, organized or not, we can get away with it. There, there was none of that. They weren't having none of that at all. So every kind of a gathering, especially rock concerts, because there's young minds, was a political forum. So once they got inside, they knew the cops couldn't bother them. So before the show and after the show, they they would um, push their political agendas as best they could, yeah. and land uh, you know pamphlets and and soapbox themselves out there, you know, to their different ideologies. So I said, okay, fine. I keep the stage from being, you know, a, a problem. So let's, let's go ahead and do it. So I gave him 75 passes. And we, the opening act goes off not a, without a hitch. I get the band up on stage. At the time, the road manager was uh, a fellow named George Seward. So me and him were sort of standing in the wing because uh, it was a high stage. So I wasn't worried about somebody coming up the front. So they get out there. They start the first song, which I don't remember what it was at that time. And next thing you know, we're in a hailstorm of railroad rocks coming from God knows where. So we had to stop, get the band off. Luckily, there was a tunnel, uh, since it being a, a, a bicycle stadium, there, there was a tunnel that went from like the center of the field underneath back to where the dressings were. So we were relatively safe once we got back there. But I went back out there uh, with, looking for George just to see what happened. It lasted about 15 minutes. And nobody got hurt, thankfully. And we went out and we finished the show. Mm-hmm. But during that time, we were like, okay, we're going to have to get out of here. So we were ready to 
to uh, you know cut the band's hair, make a make, you know send the limos out uh, as a decoy and go out a different way. I mean, we had all these things in our head about what we may or may not do. Wow. And then that evening <laughs> after the show, we got back to the hotel. Everybody sat in my room. I don't know why, <laughs> but we're all sitting around my room talking. <laughs> wow! But it was you know that, those were the times and pretty much the only times that it was genuinely concerned for everybody's safety. Right. Fans would be fans back then. There wasn't a lot of weapons carrying going on. People had knives, but the the, the anger wasn't there most times. I mean, they were they were zealous as far as trying to see the band, mm-hmm. but they didn't want to harm them. And and uh, I can remember being in a hotel and and people coming up to the floor and I said, look, you can't come on, you can't come on the floor. You know, it's just you just can't. And they they'd moan and groan, but they didn't you know really test it. I did have a guy in Memphis tested though. Oh, yeah. And he was with his son. His son had to be everything, you know, maybe 10 years old. So we started, you know, putting a security person separate from us at the elevator banks when we knew we had the whole floor. So I had one there, and uh, I hear this guy arguing with the security guys. So I go down there, see what's up, see if I can smooth over the situation. And the fellows had a few drinks, and he's saying, I, I need to see the band. And I said, well, I'm sorry, so you can't do that right now. And he, you know, becomes persistent and then more persistent and, you know, a little, little uh, nasty. And I, I finally said, look, you know, if you don't get back on the elevator, I'm going to have to do something I really don't want to do <laughs> in front of your son. Yeah. Yeah. And um, luckily I didn't have to. But I said, you know, you want to do, you say you, you want to talk for you to get an autograph because it's for your son. I said, but look at the way you're acting. Is that the way you keep your children? Mm-hmm. I said, I, if I could accommodate you, I would, but I can't. You know, right now they're taking showers and they're on their own time and I can't go bother them. Right. Uh, I said, if you want to wait for about an hour and a half, he said, no, I got to go. I said, well, then you got to go. Mm. And after about 15 minutes, he finally moved off on his own and, you know, it didn't come to anything more than that. But, you know, most of the time people would accept a no and just go about their business. Right. The hardest time was when we were in someplace eating. Because we're looking for cameras, first of all. And most people in a hotel setting, they're usually there for a function of some kind, whether it's their own uh, vacation or a wedding party or some kind of stuff. So we know there's always going to be cameras around. Always cameras. But then they get up and they want to start you know, talking to the band. And there's nothing worse than trying to touch somebody when you've got a mouthful of food. <laughs> you know, it just seems awkward. Yeah. So we used, to, we used to have to, like, we would position ourselves on different tables around the band. So, you know, they walk past us, and we know they're going for the band. We just grab them by the pant leg or <laughs> by the arms and say, excuse me, or we're eating. Better uh, go sit down. Yeah. And then we were big enough and, and I guess, gnarly looking enough that people just go, okay, fine, we'll leave them alone. <laughs> well, you know, most of the time, you know, people are people. And if you understand people, mm-hmm. then you can pretty much get them to comply with what you need done. And you can't lie about it. Right. If I said, look, if you wait till after they eat, they'll give you an autograph. I made sure that at least one of them would give an autograph. Right. If not all, depending on who I had down there eating, you know, and, and they understood that factor. Like I said, they were real good with fans, mm-hmm. whether they thought they were true fans or not really didn't matter. If it was somebody's parent, you're liable to buy an album. So there's some value in giving that person an autograph, yeah, sure. that's smart. you know, for a little Joey or whoever, you know, mm-hmm. nephews, nieces, who could, who, you know, at that point you don't care. Uh, it's a stroke, but it's also good karma. Sure. Totally. Now, you can't lose by being nice. Uh, the craziest times we had as far as fans being persistent, I mean, they were, they were kind of crazy in Tokyo. 
there are really good fans in the United States, really good fans in Europe. But the first time we went to Australia, these people were out of their minds. Yeah. I guess they were so starved. I mean, Australia is a big island, you know, but it's all by itself. So, you know, things would come there periodically. You know, when when you came there, like I said, it was just in the 1980s. So we weren't that far out of the 70s. Everybody didn't have handheld computers and all that stuff yet. So music was a big deal. Uh, it was the first time I really experienced uh, a Beatlemania type situation with the band. Right. Tokyo totally was like was. that because the the, uh, the kids were outside the hotels, but because of their culture, the police would come and just get rid of them, and they would leave right away. In Australia, these kids were out there, guys and girls, and they were singing kids' songs and calling a hotel. The hotel wanted to shoot us because they you know, <laughs> tied up all the phone lines. And then uh, we would have, uh, like I said, they are persistent. They'd call in bomb scares, figuring, well, the band's got to come out sometime. Right. Yeah, yeah, we'll and, and once they did the first one, then we were on to it. So... Uh, you know, I wound up not having to take the band out at all uh, over the first one. The second one was in, uh, I believe, a place called Adelaide. We got to the hotel early that evening, and, you know, by 10 o'clock, there's a bomb scare going on. So I went down and talked to the hotel and the local constabulary, and said, these are my feelings. I think this is what it is. But they, they said, well, we got to be safe. I said, okay, fair enough. So they brought a uh, armored truck, and they rolled, rolled it to the back door. And it just fit in there nice enough so I could open the doors from the hotel. Doors for the uh, armored truck were open, and we could just roll, roll right in there. And no matter what they did, they didn't get a chance to see them. <laughs> so I'm sure that ticked them off somewhat. Oh, sure. But they were determined. They tried real hard. Nice bunch of people. Yeah. You know, uh, everybody there was they, – they were um, nice about their country. They were proud of their country. Mm-hmm. You know, they would – they would say hello to us. They asked me for autographs. That's not kind of weird. But, you know, we were part of it, so they wanted a part of it. Yeah. My birthday was in the newspaper, you know? Oh, really? And it, like, why? Well, you're part of the show, you know? Yeah. It, it goes. You're part of the Kiss Mania taking over. Exactly. Yeah. And then, awesome. uh, but but if they talked to you, they would, after they got their business out of the way, they would try to get an autograph or what have you, they would ask you, have you been down here or to this particular restaurant or over to this place? You know, there's a famous uh, area called Charing Cross. Have you been down there to the shops? You know, they were really, they really wanted you to see their country, mm-hmm. which I thought was fabulous. It wasn't just That's all cool. about the band. It was about them as well. That's we cool. appreciate you coming here. So since you're here, you should see these things. Yeah, mm-hmm. we're pretty awesome. Check it out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, but they didn't say it in that way. Right. You know, it was like, look, I think you should go see this. This is something that we would go see, you know, being Australian. Mm-hmm. Which was cool. That's very cool. Very hospitable. Oh yeah, and and they genuinely like American uh, Western ideas. You know, there's, there's a few places you can go to in the world that are like that. Australia was one of them at that time. Where it is today, I don't know. I haven't been back for quite a long time. But touring with the band, I mean, it, it, the first time we went to Europe was was great fun. But it was but it was uh, definitely took some getting used to. We weren't in America anymore, Toto. Yeah. And and back then production was just starting to happen on a big scale in Europe and here as well. But, you know, we had better electrical grids and stuff like that. Where we didn't have so much problems. I can remember knocking out the power in, in one of the places in Germany just because that area, the, the substations couldn't handle it. And then, you know, the overall production, like, you know, today, if you've ever been backstage, I'm sure you guys have at some point, you know, there's, there's plethora of things, you know, all these guys, you know, about the riders and, 
You know, there's yeah. plenty to drink, there's plenty to eat, all that type of thing. The, the road crew gets three squares a day, plus all the all the soft drinks in the world they want. Most of them get beer after the show to put on the bus. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it wasn't like that in the early 70s. And in Europe, it wasn't like that at all. You could die for Coca-Cola, hot or cold. <laughs> wow. It just wasn't around. Yeah. And, you know, we were in France. And to show you how weird things were then, we played a, uh, a place called the Olympia in Paris. And we played there in the afternoon. You know, which was odd. And then we went back that night to see who was playing at night. It was Jerry Lewis. We knew this. You know, and and like, he is their national hero. Yeah. Yeah. Those people love Jerry Lewis. All the old sticks they would do with the typewriter and all that kind of stuff. These people were hanging from the rafters to see him. That's wild. (laughs) It it is. It was wild. And you see, you know, we we were exposed to those cultural differences you didn't get here. Mm -hmm. And some of them we we could aspire to, some of them we didn't. You know, and it, it made touring at some points very tedious, very hard to deal with. Right. Because you couldn't get the things you wanted. You'd become homesick, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, you wanted a real burger, not whatever they're passing off as burgers. Yeah. And some places did offer hamburger, you know, but it wasn't what we were used to. Not that you wanted McDonald's, but you wanted, you know, something your mother would make. Sure. You, you know, that type of thing. There. You ain't going to get it, you know. Well, Big John, you've so, had you've had such a long career with Kiss, you know, and you've got to, you know, cross paths with so many unique characters. I thought maybe to round this up, you know, we could just maybe throw throw a few names at you, and maybe you could give us a cool story or or what you think of the person, and then of course we'll end with the band themselves. But I think one, and here's a guy we've had on the show a couple of Kissmas and Julys ago. A guy named Moose Orokinto, and he was so awesome. And I was wondering, you know, what was your impressions of Moose? Oh, Moose! Yeah, yeah, Moose was cool. He was Peter's drum tech. He was great. He was one of the first guys that, that got it together to do the uh, flaming or the exploding drumsticks. Right. He nearly cost him his fingers. That's right. Yeah, he told us that story. Yeah, yeah. And uh, but back in the, and even in those days, the very early days, we had a we had a collection of oddities like Moose. A fellow named Zero who did the rest of the pyrotechnics. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, we had a natural uh, um, um, uh, Ace's technician, Barry Aikum. He's the one that got through on the first when Ace got electrocuted down there in Lakeland. Oh, yeah. Uh, um, a, a fellow by the name of Paul Chavry, who later went on to be, uh, uh, you know, uh, a production manager for Rolling Stones. He used to be Gene Face Tech. Mm-hmm. But it was only people. And, and we were all. Uh, uh, kiss thing because you know we we were taught by Gene essentially. Now, the first thing Gene said to me after I'm going to meet every girl in the world was that <laughs> um, you were to wear kiss t-shirts while shows and while you're at the show. He said, I don't care what you wear on your day off, but if you ain't got a kiss t-shirt on at the show, there's going to be trouble. Really? Yeah. And and so we all we we, we were sort of indoctrinated into that thinking. And and it worked, and it worked for us. And that's why I said, you know, the protective part, because all those fellows I mentioned were protective of the band. Right. Aside from the fact it was all our bread and butter at the time, sure. we didn't quite look at it that way. These were our guys, and you ain't going to fuck with them. Because everybody else was, you know. The uh, the uh, press, the rock press kind of didn't give them a, a tumble. You know, if they did, it was so small and French you couldn't read it. And we resented that because we know how hard we were working. Right. We knew how hard the band worked, and well, maybe maybe the material that the band was producing wasn't, you know, Rolling Stones rock critics' idea of, of rock, but 
there was a lot of other people out there that, that disagreed with him. Uh, yeah. That yeah, were buying tickets that. and buying albums and, and supporting that band. Mm-hmm. And yeah. the band knew that. And that's that's what I think really turned them into, into such a pro-fan-type uh, organization. They understood that in spite of what all these knuckleheads would say in Circus and the various other publications, that there was people out there who loved them, adored them, and supported them. That's right. That's right. And those were the important people. These other people didn't matter. Right. And in the early days, and even in the beginning when they were headlining, it, they didn't care if Circus Magazine gave them a poor review or no review at all. Yeah, it hurts your ego a little bit, but you know what? The reality was it made them stronger because they knew what was going on. When we did Carball Hall the first time and, and that big blowout and the live album came out, I don't care whose critic you were, you can't deny the fact of that album and how wonderful it was. That's yeah. great. Yeah, it's legendary. You know? And it actually, out of the two, I think that was the better one as far as capturing the live essence of the band. I do too. You know, and you yeah. think about you know, all it these was years tremendous. later. When people are talking about like the greatest live albums of all time, that one's always it's right there. in there. You know, maybe not. Oh yeah, time, it has to be. Wise, but it has to be. Sure whether, whether you like Kiss or not, if you were to listen to that album, you couldn't help but be involved in in the energy of that album. Yeah, totally. And and understand, you know, that those people there that were at there were having the time in their lives at that particular time. That's right. Thousands you know, so, and thousands of live critics right there. You know, who needs Rolling oh, yeah. Stone when you got your answer right in front? That's right. Because, like, with Alive and then Love Gun and Rock and Roll Over Kiss had a strong identity, but you witnessed them go through a, quite a metamorphosis with, um, that's a big word, like gymnasium. As Jim it, yeah, but you're right. It was odd. Yeah, they went into disco and, and, and then they went into the And elder. I don't know, like, like I said the other night to Chris, you know, there's a lot of things that we knew about, a lot of things we don't know about. Yeah. Because we, we were not in the inner, inner circle because we weren't meant to be. Mm-hmm. So there were certain things that were never discussed in our presence if they could avoid it, whether it be the band or certain management types. Mm-hmm. Now, the uh, Rock and Roll Over one was so-so. That was Eddie Kramer. And they, they had worked with Eddie Kramer before. Right. He did the Beatles. Mm-hmm. Jimmy Hendrix. But, yeah. you know, I know certain individuals in the band were striving for something a little bit harder, you know, a little bit edgier which was starting to really become pronounced at that time. Well, I guess you know, that, that would have been Ace, right? Ace wanted right. to be the hard rocker. Right, exactly. And then by the time we got to, uh, what, was after one, what was the one with the... Uh, Dynasty? Uh, yeah, no. Unmasked. After that. Unmasked. And then The Elder. The Elder, that's the one I'm thinking of. Mm. By the time we got there, there was a lot of tension in the band. You know, they had already uh, dropped Peter. Mm-hmm. And that was still, but at that time, it was still up in the air. We thought he might be coming back. Really? The album yeah. was going to be recorded at Ace's house, which it was. Yeah. Yeah, at the art recording studio. But there was a lot of tension with him. He wanted it to go in a certain direction. He wanted it to be a rock and roll album, which to this day, if you ask him, they'll tell you that that, that album is rubbish. It's not rock and roll. Yeah, right. In his eyes and in his heart. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I was there for the whole thing, so I heard some of the guitar riffs. I heard, you know, the various things that were going on. And, you know, the one person, which they they did contractually, and I found this out much later, they gave Ezrin, uh, who was the producer, mm-hmm. almost complete uh, governorship of what was going to go on that album. Wow. In lieu of giving him points. Mm. That's what I was told. Now, I can't prove that. I'm well, Like I said, I was not privy to that. So it's not a direct quote for me because I don't know. Right. But so it would was... make sense due to the fact that 
what the what the finished product was. Yeah. I understand the concept part of it. Yeah. But it got so far removed from a rock aspect. Totally. And that's was I put that all on Ezra. And Ezra had just finished doing Pink Floyd the Wall. That's right. right. Mm-hmm. And if you listen to the wall them and then you listen it. to the elder, you'll see a lot of similarities. Yeah, not sure. note for note, of course not. No, but it's but the same idea. The, the, right? the, the cadence of, of the album, the, the, the various instruments used, all, a lot of the instrumentation. Mm-hmm. You know, Ezra's a really cool guy. I love Bob Ezra. Yeah. You know, he's really nice. But Kiss is uh, a pink you know, I, I, Him and, and Vinnie Ponce, I thought, were, were the two best producers for them guys. Yeah. And, and Eddie Kramer would come in number three. That particular album, I think by them, if it's true, if they gave him that much artistic license, then they had no, no nothing to do but eat it. And Gene and Paul, again, you know, they were looking for the the concept part of it. Right. That's what was appealing to them because that was after it was like a follow up to the comic book. Mm-hmm. You know, so here we are. We're going to be superheroes on music now. Right. Which is great, but but I think a lot of the the, the situation was it was so lackluster. In, in rock performance. Yeah. yeah. There's nothing on the album that you'd go, wow, that was really cool. Well, you know, maybe I. As a rock setting. <laughs> like in that. my eyes. Yeah. You know? Yeah, so when you were listening to this being made, were you just thinking, and then you saw that they changed their look pretty dramatically for that, the costumes, where you were just like, what the hell's going on here? Well, yeah, they, they, they you know, things started getting really out there with, with the costuming and stuff. But again, you know, the, like, like most other successful people, mm-hmm. You have to keep changing. Right. You yeah. can't live in your own image for a long time. Right. You know, look at John Rivers. She had a zillion face jobs. Why? Because <laughs> that was part of her thing. You know, it made her fresh. It gave her something to talk about. I mean, she was self-facing to herself, but she knew that's what made her great. That's true. But the change is what I'm talking about. Yeah. People have to change. You have to You have to continue to put out something new, you know, in a, in a total fashion. Right. So with them... You know, I think a lot of that was struggling at that time. Mm-hmm. You know, like, and I can remember when we come back uh, after doing the solo albums, you know, there was a lot of problems going on there. Everybody, you know, had was given the opportunity to go off in their own musical direction. Yep. Sort of like to find themselves. Yeah. You know, I worked on uh, Asian's album and a little bit on Peter's. And I think Asian's album, to me, not because I worked on it, but because I thought it was, I thought it was the best rock version mm-hmm. of those four albums. Right. Totally. You know, and he had the and he had the best success with it. Yeah, he did. You know, I can remember we recorded at a place in uh in Connecticut. It was uh, called the Filson House. It was originally built by Romulus Riggs Colgate in 1908 or something. Mm-hmm. It was the first uh house in the United States that had uh uh indirect lighting as opposed to candles or gas or something else. Yeah. It was pretty cool. I think it I was heard, a huge place. I think I heard a story from Eddie Kramer that uh, that they thought that, that when the album was being made that like weird things were going on, like they thought it might even be haunted. It might be. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I had two guys work there overnight, uh, you know, when we weren't there, and they'd come back and tell me, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of creepiness in this house. Yeah. They'd, never yeah. be, they'd never be specific, and I never experienced it, and I spent a lot of time up there wandering around and stuff. I crashed a, a, a mice's, uh, Ace's uh, <laughs> moped. I took it for a ride and wound up in a, in a crossing over the road. There were two big wagon ruts yeah. in the road. <laughs> and I hit it at about 50 coming down the hill. Oh. And that was all she rode for that thing. 
<laughs> oh. oh, yeah. My cousin thought I broke my neck because I went over the handlebars. Oh, wow. Because it stopped dead, but I didn't. <laughs> Jeez. Oh, and man. then, uh, but with that, when we re- and when we recorded the, the bells for uh, Fractured Mirror, uh-huh. yeah. that bell was on top of the house. Really? Because it was the biggest house in the area when it was built, it was, that was the fire bell. You know, in that area, if there was a fire, you would see it from that house. And they would ring the bell to summon the volunteer fire people to, to at least get there, pick up the equipment, and go. Or at least look up in the air and see that there was a fire somewhere. Because I'm sure it was, like, mostly you know, farmland at that time, very rural. But you didn't have firemen show up when you guys did it for their album. No, 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 no. <laughs> but but the, the best part about that is we're syncing it from downstairs to upstairs so it came in according to the track. So it was visual. Mm-hmm. So we did it in, in two takes, you know, just to back. We backed one up right away. And we went inside, and we're in, in the uh, remote truck. And Eddie Kramer, you know, turns up the, the pods. And the thing we heard that we were blown away with is the background. All those birds and bugs and things that you hear chirping yeah. and squirping and all that kind of stuff are real. Oh, wow. We couldn't have figured that out if we wanted to. That's a cool story. You know, they, it just awesome. happened. And, I mean, it blew us away. Eddie Kramer particularly said, that was, that's so tremendous. Because yeah. it fit to the pattern of the music. You know, it, it had that kind of beginning anyway. Yeah. So it was really, really a cool thing. We Man, thought. that is super cool. That is cool. Yeah. And, and of course, you know, we weren't trying to get that. And, and we didn't know that it existed until we did the playback. But it adds so And then we were all blown away going, wow, that's... You know, again, if you had wanted to do it that way, it wouldn't have happened. Right. right? You know, if you were if you were counting on that. Yeah. Yeah. Were you were you involved with any other recording sessions where stuff like that took place? Well, I did Ace's album, as I said. You know, I did all the all the albums from from Alive One all the way up to The Elder, and then something after that, I think. Mm-hmm. And you know, I, wherever they were, I would I would be involved. Right. I didn't do Gene's solo album because he did it on the West Coast, nor Paul's because he did it on the West Coast. Right. And at that time, we had a staff of four, one for each. So we had those people involved as well for that. Car- like I said, when we, when we would do it, I didn't get involved in, in, in the recording aspect too much. Uh-huh. I did hand claps on, on Ace's album, uh, nice. on New York Groove, yeah. and a bunch of us did that. And then uh, other than that, uh, we were there, but we, we we didn't get involved because it wasn't our place to get involved. Right. You know, I wasn't a sound. I wasn't a technician of any sort, where I could offer my opinion. Or I did do it once. <laughs> uh, to uh, I forget it was. I think it was Gene. And we were doing a baseline, and I said, "What I do is count, you knucklehead." You know, he was having trouble getting something down. I think it was Gene, or it could have been Peter. One of them just couldn't get timing right. You know, and it was just they, you know when you get a mental block in your head. Yeah. When you're trying to do something and you can't do it. Mm-hmm. And then it becomes paramount because you can't do it even more because you got it in your head. <laughs> right. That's pretty much what happened. <laughs> but the only aspects of recording we had was we were just there to be at their beck and call. You know, I had the best takeout going on in New York City in Manhattan. Because <laughs> I would go to all the upscale restaurants, tell them who I was working for. Like at that time, Tavern on the Green was still open. I could get takeout from there and they'd give me place settings to go with it. Wow. That's which wild. I thought was cool. And then on 54th, we did a lot of recording at uh, the record plant, mm-hmm. which is on 44th. And if you went up 
uh, Broadway or 8th Street, uh, 9th Street rather, for uh, a couple of blocks from beyond 54th Street, and that was called Restaurant Row. And it was a couple of restaurants that the band liked to go to there, so I arranged to get takeout for them from there. Mm-hmm. So no, nobody ever went hungry, and nobody ever had, didn't have exactly what they wanted. You know, what you know, used to get uh, takeout out of the Waldorf Astoria. For Paul, he liked the uh, Japanese and Chinese restaurant there, so we'd get we'd get stuff from over there. That was the extent of my recording the with them, you know, as far as being involved. Mm-hmm. And like I said, we were security guys, so if they wanted to go out, we were there to go. Yeah. Let me ask you this. Um, so you were, I'm guessing you were there for the auditions both that wound up getting Eric Carr and also some of the auditions that got Vinnie Vincent. Do you, any particular memories of those? I wasn't there for Vinnie. I was, I was working for him, but I, I don't know whether I got there or not for that. Mm-hmm. I may have been out doing something else because I didn't have to be there. Right. You know, but Eric I was there for yeah. when they decided on him. And Eric was great. You know, uh, God rest his soul. I mean, he was, when he found out that he was the choice he was over the moon yeah yeah and and he really out of all of them he was the most thankful because he realized what this actually meant to him mm-hmm. you know he'd been struggling he was about the same age as us now so he'd been struggling for a long time trying to be a rock star yeah and to finally make it in, in a band that had that high a caliber uh was really important to him and he was just over the moon about everything. I remember when we went to Europe, uh, <laughs> although he was the target of Gene, Gene's a very crafty fellow, and he likes to take the piss out of everybody. So he would tease Eric every chance he got, but then he teased us every chance he got, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, so we were, we were sitting in uh, Lyon at the hotel having breakfast, and we're all there at the big table, and Eric was so trusting. You know, he really believed that these guys are not fuck on anymore because he's in a band. So he's asking, he wanted to be polite to the people serving him. How do you say butter? He looked at me and went, I don't know. (laughs) So Gene Gene immediately interjects, Fapouge. (laughs) And Eric looked at me and I said, I don't know. And he looked at Gene again. Gene doubles up on Fapouge. So of course, that's what Eric asked for. Of course, the woman looked at him like he had three heads. He had no idea what he was saying. Oh, it's geez. not a French word. It just sounds a little French. Just but we all had a good laugh out of that at Eric's expense. <laughs> wow. But that's, but that's Gene. Yeah. Don't you ever play play uh, racquetball with him? That takes your head off. Oh, yeah? <laughs> oh, he's brutal. He's very very competitive, that man. That's cool. He oh. don't like to lose at most things or anything, actually. Yeah. I mean, you've got to know these guys so good and so intimately. Like you said, you're you're close in the same age. You guys are like brothers out on the road growing up together. Well, well that's that's pretty much it. Yeah, we fought like brothers sometimes too, you know, because, yeah. you know, things would get out of turn, out of hand, whatever. And, and, you know, sometimes, like Gene would go away. He'd get up on stage and he became the monster. Mm-hmm. And I remember one night he'd come off stage and he was puffing and puffing and groaning and we're going down the steps. And going down steps in them shoes, especially the ones that he would wear, because aside from being platforms, he was now a cover over them, so they looked like you know, dragon heads. Right. So that made it even more difficult. And he didn't have lights on back there because it was the end of the show. So I'm a pretty big fella, so he used to put his his hand on my shoulder. Mm-hmm. Well, he missed my shoulder uh, one night and couldn't find my arm fast enough. He didn't fall down. He just fell it to me and didn't maintain but he gave me a ration of shit all the way back to the dressing room. <laughs> so I, I let him spout off. And then when we, when we got, when he got finished and we were finished, we were back at the hotel. 
he's walking down the, the hotel corridor. I said, now let me tell you something. <laughs> and I went off on him, you know. And and that's the way we would do things then. And, you know, it was still, you know, early on. It was in the 70s, yeah. uh, you know, 77, something like that, 78. Right. But but not in a way that I was going to, you know, hurt them. Right. You know, no, but I we had you. differences of opinion, sure. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, you know, uh, Peter... Could be a nightmare sometimes. I mean, I'm sure there's been enough extensive stuff written about him in a negative way. Sure. Yeah. Uh, about the, you know, in his in his last days with the band. I mean, he was just a nightmare to deal with. On the road, you know, if we had a day off, we used to we used to travel on the day off, so we would be in town the night before, mm-hmm. so everybody get a good night's sleep, fresh, you know, ready to go. Well, he didn't want to do that. He wanted to travel. I, I mean. He wanted to have the day off where he was, right? And then travel the morning of the show. But we couldn't get him out of bed then either. <laughs> so we, he went. The road manager had to stay behind one time and made him go to the airport in his pajamas. Wow! <laughs> he just walked in, threw everything in his suitcase, and Peter was nuts about that because Peter is a very meticulous guy about packing. He packed everything just so. Cologne bottles had to be wrapped, you know, in a towel and stuff so they wouldn't break. All that kind of thing. Well, everything got thrown in the bags. The bags got put out the door, and the road manager said, "Come on, we're going." And dragged him out the door, put him in a limo, took him to, took him to the uh, to, to the airport, and that's the way he went to the next city. It's almost but, OCD. You know, I, I, it's just that part. Those were some of the things that were breaking points for everybody. Yeah, you got to be enough already. Whatever, whatever the individual's problems were, it became everybody's problem. Sure. You know, and and the the people at fault we were all at fault because we were we were um, what's that word they use today? Uh, we were allowing things to happen. Yeah. You know, oh, you we would look the enablers. other way. You know, we were enablers, including the management. We knew, you know, and I know they knew that there was problems with Peter Anes. Yeah. With substance abuse of some kind or another, whether it would be drinking or pills or what have you. Right. And, and, you know, instead of, you know, them interjecting and, and really, you know, putting their foot down, because KISS was a four-part corporation. Yeah. And they could have been very instrumental in being the sway vote, going, look, well, I'm not going to, you know, he could have flat and said, look, you know, put, I'm not going to manage you guys unless this guy straightens out. So it would be, be leverage to make, at least make the person, you know, figure something out. But there was none of that. So it became a pissing match between four people. You know, and, and that went nowhere, obviously. It didn't solve any problems, made the problems bigger because then, then a lot of resentment set in. You know, you get to, well, he's just picked on you because he wants to. And then that was not the case. Everybody became unhappy. It wasn't fun to do this anymore because, you know, you weren't, you weren't operating at, at your best, let alone peak performance. You weren't even at your best. So, you know, the two guys who are out there uh, that feel an airport in an airport, that they got two guys who they feel are not putting in their part, mm-hmm. and by their actions they're showing it that way. Yeah. So it got to be it got to be a little testy. Oh, I can you imagine. know, there was one there was one time we had a a, a band fight <laughs> uh, between uh, two people. And, like an um, actual throwdown fist fight. Well, it was more of a uh, wrestling match uh, on feet, <laughs> but uh, yeah. and it was a couple of punches thrown. But me and Eddie looked at each other, and me and Eddie worked for the longest. He said, we can't get involved in that. Let's see what happens first. Because you can't win. Yeah. See, 
I know people who were fired that worked for bands for getting involved in band things. Right, yeah. Even that. I knew I knew a guy that worked for Ozzy and Ozzy loved him and he and Sharon loved him. But one night Ozzy got on a bus drunker than alone. Sharon gave him a bunch of shit. He grabbed Sharon by the throat. This fellow intervenes. Next day he was fired. Oh wow. He didn't beat them up. He oh. just stopped our, he stopped Ozzy from strangling Sharon. Oh, and they canned him. <laughs> yeah. So Holy shit. You know, we you just know you know, it's like getting in a fight between brothers or, oh. or relatives. Yeah. You gotta let them sort it out a little bit by themselves. Right. I mean, if they want to throw a few punches, fine. You know, as long as they're not picking up weapons and hitting each other with chairs. Right. Let them let them let them clear the air somewhat. Yeah. So that's what we did, and then you know it sort of calmed down because uh, you know they were like two boxers that they were hanging on each other. So we intervened then. Mm-hmm. You know, and this is before we're going on stage. Oh wow! I said this should be an interesting show. Oh yeah, um, how they how they play that <laughs> night? But anyway, we pulled it off, or yeah. they pulled it off, probably. So right. which, but, which uh, member of Kiss is the best fighter? Uh, I don't think any of them were no. fighters. <laughs> <laughs> They're all lovers. Not a one. I can remember. I can remember. This is a true story. Uh, Paul coming to me and going, "Come on, box with me." I said, you don't want to do that. <laughs> he said, no, I do, I do. Come on, box me. And this is way back. Rick Stewart was still working for them. Uh-huh. And Rick looked at me and said, well, bye, hey, but try not to hurt him. And, you know, he, I let him throw a couple of shots, and I threw two. Uh-huh. One to fake him out, the other hit him right in the throat. Because oh. I pulled it. I pulled it because I didn't want to hit him in the, in the nose, right. which is naturally where it would go. Uh-huh. So after three times of doing it, I said, Paul, we can't do this no more. <laughs> <laughs> I said, it's just not good. You're going to get hurt. Yeah. No, no, no. Come on. We'll do later. I said, yeah, much later. So we never really did that again. <laughs> but, but the rest of them, I mean, they weren't fighters. They, you know, yeah. they sort of wanted to come off as a tough guy because he grew up in the Bronx. Right. And he may have been. Yeah. But he was more of a lover than a fighter, yeah. you know, yeah. in that respect. I mean, he, he, he's, none of these guys were, were like the hardcore street guys or none of that stuff. Yeah. You know, least of all, Gina Paul. Yeah. But I said, Peter... Peter came from a school of hard knocks. He lived in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, his family wasn't uh, magnanimously rich. My dad, he worked as a butcher uh, in his early days. So he, he, he'd be more to scrapper than anybody else, in my estimation. Right. They had nothing to fight about. They were making so much money, they, right. they didn't have anything to fight about. Yeah, that's right. That's what they had you guys for. You guys do all the fighting. Exactly. The bad guys. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so then on the other side of that, which member of Kiss was the most fun just to hang out with? They all had their moments. Yeah. It depends on the situation. So what's the best of if, each? If, well, Ace, because he thought he was funny. He wasn't funny all the time, but he had an infectious laugh. Yeah. yeah. He, he would tell a joke. He'd start laughing. You had to laugh. Whether you liked the joke or not, you would just laugh. Yeah. Right. Because he, he was just so into it. You know, he wasn't trying to impress you. He just he thought it was genuinely funny. <laughs> and he would do some funny stuff. You know, he had people living in his head, I think, sometimes. We, I remember we were in a in a hotel, obviously, and the elevator. It was me and him. Next thing I know, he's on his knees. He got a drink in his hand. So the door opens to our floor. He walks out of his knees. He turns back looks drink in his hand. He goes, come on, let's go. So I, evidently he had a bunch of people with him that I didn't know about. Oh, wow. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> you know? I mean, he was just that type of guy. He was just pretty funny, you know? Uh, Gene, we used to, we used to make fun of him because we called him the big professor. Yeah. He did use some, some, uh, schooling of some kind, I was told. Yeah, he was a teacher. But, you know, when he, when he was being serious and he wanted to get his point across, he would talk to you like the big professor. 
you know, and be like, well, well, let me tell you, you don't know nothing. I know it all. Right. <laughs> you know, and, and, and we let him go on with that for about five minutes. And then we just laugh at him and go, you, you, you know, forget about it. <laughs> you know, forget about it. We ain't even going to listen to you. Uh, Peter, Peter was genuinely, uh, he liked being liked. You know, and he made it very easy to like him. He was charming. Right. You know, and and uh, he liked he liked a lot of things that his parents liked. Like he was real into jazz. He was real into Frank Sinatra. You know, because he was Italian. Yeah. So it was cool to be into Frank Sinatra. Not so much then as it is now, but then he was into him. Mm-hmm. You know, and he'd sing Sinatra tunes. You know, the day on time off and stuff like that. And it, it was just his head. Paul, on on the other hand, he was he he had a dark side. I mean, he, he was not gloomy, but he wasn't as gregarious as his stage persona. You know, he would do things, but he was more on the road. He was more of a homebody than anybody. He would be in his room. He liked to listen to music. He had a very diversified taste, rock taste, but diversified. He he was not, uh, in the early days, when everybody was out there uh, saying hello to all the fans of the you know, he was very selective, if at all. Mm-hmm. You know, he'd come down and tease them. He'd come down to the bar and you know, sort of look around, and he'd be there, and all of a sudden he was gone. Yeah. You know, and he, I know he went back up to his room. So he had to, you know, he had his own mystique going on about himself. But, you know, as nice as nice can be, they all they all have redeeming qualities, you know. Sure. Uh, but he wasn't as competitive outwardly as Gene was. Gene loved competition. That <laughs> yeah. seemed to be his drive. That's why he's all about the business, because to him it's a game. You know, if you watch any of the... Uh, the, the program they did, the uh, Family Jewels. Mm-hmm. And when he's talking about business, he lights up. Oh, yeah. It's like, you know, the, the game is afoot, you know, and, and and that's where he's at. And with regular games, he's the same way. You're playing card room. He wants to win. You're playing racquetball. He wants to win. He doesn't want to have to settle or lose. And that's just his makeup. He didn't do it to be a nasty guy. No, it's you just know, he, he He just, I'm competitive. I, I'm going to win. Yeah, and that's the way that he would view it. Goes to show why he's so successful. Yeah. I mean, well, yeah. You know, and remember, like I said earlier on in our conversation, he, out of all of them, was the driving force of the band. Yeah. He ate, slept, and drank Kiss. That was his thing. That's what he said to us about the T-shirts and, and the representation. When you're out with us, it's Kiss. I don't care who you like personally, and we all like a lot of different things. Yeah. You yeah. know, Paul, Paul loved the birds and some other people. But, you know, we wouldn't talk about that when we were out. We would talk about KISS. Sure, but that when was you're on the clock and it's working time, it's KISS time. Well, especially a lot of people didn't do that. You know, they, they, you know, if they had any kind of press talk at all, it was, well, it was this guy they liked or somebody else. You know, if they were asked, and they were never asked early on who was their influences, mm-hmm. you know, they would tell you now, well, back then they probably, you know, would be hard-pressed to really get them to commit to anybody. Right. Let me ask you this. Let me ask you about, because um, we, I don't know, you, you probably don't know a lot about our show, but one thing that we've done is we've done a bunch of specials about Vinnie Vincent because he's basically like kind of the mystery man of rock and roll because there's so much to know about the guy because he's a mystery. But what do you remember about that Creatures of the Night tour and, and your interactions with him? Well, I'll tell you, Vinnie was a very nice guy, magnanimous man. He loved his wife and daughters. Mm-hmm. They were babies then, and he, he used to call them the little knuckleheads, and he would just beam when he talked about them. Yeah, He loved that family. I heard since then things went awry, but I don't know that, so I'm not going to talk about that. Yeah, I know a, that when he was there, the, 
the biggest thing I remember about Vinny was he had bad feet. Oh yeah. And he had to wear and he had, yeah and he had to wear uh, corrective arches in his in his regular shoes, let alone those things. And he had a really hard time dealing with the uh, with the platforms. Mm. It just that and wasn't crazy about the makeup either. He wanted to be uh, a Rolling Stone type uh, rock and roller, not somebody in makeup. And now he never came out and said that. But you could tell, and I mean, everything was, a, was those things were a battle for him. Mm-hmm. You know, he was the last one to get finished at night with the makeup, and you know, you could see him struggling on stage. If you ever see any footage, mm-hmm. he's not really uh, too adept with those platform shoes. He had a rough time with them. But personally, you know, the the, the brief time we got to spend, he was to me, he was just all about the family. He loved his wife. He also he talked about and the kids. And whenever there was an opportunity, the kids and the wife would show up. You know, and and uh, <laughs> we went. We were we were in uh, Brazil the first time, and uh, that evening, uh, first or second evening we were there, the promoter decides to take us to a, a, a cuparinha bar. Now, that? that bar in particular had tons of women in it, so it was like. A meeting place of sorts okay. to catch my drift. Yeah, you know, you would have a drink, and these ladies would come and sit with you, and uh, and try to take the conversation further. Yeah, okay. You know, so they told Vinny, "Don't bring your wife," <laughs> but she came anyway. Oh, so it made, it made for a very awkward situation, you know. <laughs> but I mean, that's just the way it was. He was so at that point in his life. He was enamored with his family, yeah. and that's just the way he was. Right. That's cool, you know. And and it was very cool at that time. But we knew it was awkward, and we didn't really know what was going on until we got there. Right. And we we're like, oh, okay, we see, you know, <laughs> because they were not saying exactly what it was either. The promoter reps. Okay. Yeah. So we were sort of in the dark. And that's when I met. Uh, it was a guy in Brazil at that time who was in charge of their uh, federal army mm-hmm. or federal police force. And he became my soul brother because we looked alike. He had the same mustache, except his hair was much shorter than mine. Oh, and he wow. gave me one of his bullets as a souvenir. Yeah? In my hand, at least. Yeah, he didn't shoot me with it. He just gave it to me. <laughs> I was going to say, how that work and, out? <laughs> and, he was, and he was also in charge of, if you know anything about Brazil's history, there was a time that everything was so corrupt, they couldn't get rid of the criminals because the criminals were in the government. They were in... They were in in the hierarchy of the of the uh, judges and all that kind of thing, so they developed a a group of people, a force, as it were, uh, that was called security something, and their their emblem was a skull and crossbones. And what they would do is they would go out, find the real bad guys, and execute them. They would put it you know a hood over their heads, so nobody could see who it really was, and they'd execute them right there on the street. Wow. Now, how effective that was, I believe it was effective because yeah. it cleaned up a lot of things they couldn't beat otherwise. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like taking, if you take things to the Supreme Court and they keep voting against you, but you know these people are horrible, well, obviously there's a connection to the Supreme Court. That's who they would go after. Mm-hmm. They would find that connection and eliminate it. Wow. So then wow. the trickle-down effect was the bad guys were being put back in jail as opposed to being let run wild. There's that's the story of the one guy that has a crazier yeah. job than what Big John Hart had. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm like, whoa. <laughs> he really is your soul brother. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Did you you had talked to me on the phone the other day about this? But like, so you were were you were there for the first show of that Rio tour or around? I left the day of the first show. The day of the, so you didn't actually get to see the show. 
you know, I got to see the setup. I over, I approved everything that was done in the security aspect. Talked with the uh, the police departments and all them kind of people, uh-huh. and my federal guy, <laughs> and uh, and uh, I knew that they were in capable hands. Yeah. I left the morning of the show. I flew from Rio de Janeiro to Casper, Wyoming, which mm-hmm. is a hell of a flight. Yeah, I bet. And that was when you Ooh. you started working for Iron Maiden, right? Right. Correct. Yeah. I started for working for Iron Maiden that day. So with Kiss, she originally. That Brazil tour mm-hmm. was supposed to be months earlier, right? And it got pushed back for some reason. And I had committed to him, so I said, "Look, I'll do it." You know, uh, as long as I can possibly. But I also committed to these people. Mm-hmm. So you know, it was a, it was a real close situation. But Iron Maiden had told me, "Well, if you wanted, you know, if you had to, uh, like if I couldn't find anybody to commit for me, you should, you know, they stay." Told me stay and, and finish them up and then join us afterwards. Right. But it worked out to where I found somebody who committed, who they knew. Uh, the fellow used to work for Cheap Trick, so they had, you know, we had Cheap Trick as an opener for quite a while, and they, they knew who this fellow was. It wasn't a total stranger. He wasn't a total stranger to them. He knew who they were, and you know, pretty much could handle things. Right. After so many years spent with Kiss, at the end there, you said you, you one day difference. You're in Iron, you're running with Iron Maiden at that point. After all that time, what makes you leave Kiss to join up with Maiden? A paycheck. Yeah, it just all came down to the yeah. to the pay. It's all about money. Yeah. I mean, I didn't make residuals off the album, right? You know, I didn't get you know any pre- any percentage points when they weren't working. I mean, up until um, I guess eighty two, mm-hmm. uh, they were paying me uh, if we weren't working uh, on a tour or recording, then I'd get uh, a paycheck. You know, but then that stopped. They they decided they were no longer going to do that. Some of it was was uh, because they you know they didn't have management going on as well as it should have been. But you know, and I went to them. I said, look, I need to make a paycheck. I can't you know wait till the next tour because when they finished in Brazil, they didn't go back out again for quite a while. Right. Yeah. I I would never have been able to last that long. I own a house. You yeah, know, totally. and you have bills. Mm-hmm. Uh, at that time, I didn't have my son, but you know, I was married, and you know, you like to do nice things too. Sure. But if you have no paycheck coming in, it that doesn't work out too well. Right. And unemployment don't pay jack shit. I don't care where you live. Yeah, right. So, you know, I wound up, uh, Iron Maiden had, a, had approached me, two members of the band, Steve Harris and, and Davey, and asked me if I'd be interested in working for them. And this is back when they, they opened for Kiss in, uh, in uh, Madison Square Garden. You joined back up with Kiss to do the Crazy Nights tour, right? Yeah, it was at 87. Yeah. And, and then my son was born by then. Mm-hmm. And I was, I was in the thoroughs, and I didn't know what to do. So I went back to work for them. That was the last thorough I was doing for them because my mindset became, you know, I was traveling too much. I was away too much. Mm-hmm. If you're going to have a child with children, you need to be with them sometime. So I really tried on trying to find something down here, which took me a long time to find a a niche to really fall into. Yeah, but I did it, and I wound up working for uh, this kid I met out at a place called the Hollywood Sport Touring. Mm-hmm. which was a famous rock place down here until it finally fell down. Um, he was trying to put together a company. He didn't know what to do. Anyway, he called me up when I got back from one of the tours, and he said he was putting something together. Well, I'd like to come and check it out. So I did, and I worked with him for about 13 years. And he was the office side of the operation. I was the field side. So I worked pretty good for for that time. And then in, in, uh, in uh, 19... Uh, 99, I got cancer, so I stopped working for him because I stopped working for everybody. I, you know, I was I was a year and a half on my back wow. after the cancer, 
And, uh, you know, when I got out of it, the doctor said to me, he said, look, if you can't avoid it, don't go back to the job you had because the stress is going to kill you. And I said, mm-hmm. okay. And it was a very stressful job. Sure, because things had changed. Yeah. You know, in, in the, in, well, my end of the security business, what I, what I interpreted. You know, when I was starting it, people wanted to be involved and be in it. And we were doing entertainment. We were doing movies and television shows. A lot of it, you know, films in Florida. Mm-hmm. But, you know, to find the people who wanted to work, it just wasn't there. And then the pay scale, pay scale Florida was sucky anyway. But, you know, for that particular thing, you're at the low end. So I couldn't get quality people who wanted to work. So it was constantly trying to make a silk purse out of the south here. <laughs> and it was real hard. Right. And the stress is what led to my demise, evidently. But I, you know, I I was sleepover. You know, I I got to put this guy, you know, watching, you know, a five hundred thousand dollar piece of equipment. And I know you don't know what two and two is. You know, I mean, there were there were nice people in their own right. A lot of them were immigrants of various types. But you know, there's a communication factor and 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 the emphasis factor. See, you know, I knew that these things need to be protected. They knew that they needed to watch them. Mm-hmm. The difference, you know, they were watching them, but they weren't going to intervene if somebody decided to steal it. Right. Whereas I would intervene, irregardless of how much money I was getting paid or what it was. That was the way I interpreted the job. Right, man, Big John, so, you have had an awesome life, man. Awesome adventures over the years, the amazing things. I appreciate you taking the time to sit down with us tonight, and you know, oh, no problem, my pleasure. And you know what? I feel like we're just scratching the surface here. I would love it if you could come back on with us sometime. Well, I would. I'll consider that. I'm also, I've been approached by a couple of people and a friend of mine, a close friend of mine, who uh, wants me to do a book. And I always shy away from that because I couldn't figure out what I would do as a book. Right. You know, the the, the area. Because I'm not going to go out and tell you things I didn't know about or tell you the things that I knew about but only half-assed. Right. I can only tell you about the things that I experienced. Mm-hmm. So we chose to make the book that. It'll be like my experiences, whether it be working at the Rock Hall and experiencing all those bands that I came across, yeah. or working with Kiss mm-hmm. and then Iron Maiden and Prince and Billy Idol and the things that went on there. Yeah. But only the things that I know about. I'm not going to tell you that Ace was an Alki or Peter was this. Because that's not my place. Right. Some guys have always been real good to me, and everybody has problems in their life, sure. not just one or two people. And and so think, for me yeah. to for me to throw that out there as bait, like this is the reason you should buy my book, I thought was wrong. Right. The totally. management situations, what happened between them and Bill of Coin, or them and the, and the money managers, like Whitman and Marks, mm-hmm. I don't even know. Right. I just knew it was a problem. It wasn't a good problem. But I can only speculate on what it is. Because nobody comes to me and says, this is what happened. Right. right. So I couldn't tell you. Because you I couldn't tell you. Yeah, you're not an you know, accountant. I could read Chris Lynn's book, who worked for the management company, mm-hmm. and maybe I could pull something out of that. But there again, it would be hearsay. Right. And I don't think that's fair to do to anybody. No. Especially because, the bands who I like. Man, if you're going to write a book, it's got to be your book. You know, it's got to be your perspective. Exactly. It's, it's, like it's going to be mine. You told but I mean, there's other people. There's a fellow who worked for the band on the, on the first reunion tour. I met him. He's a nice fellow. But, you know, he didn't work for him after that. And actually, you know, he put a book out. What does he know? He don't know nothing. <laughs> right. So obviously he's got to be, you know, either bad mouth in the band or just, you know, blowing smoke up somebody's skirt. Right. right. Cashing in. You know. So, you know, I, I couldn't do things like that. But, yes, I would definitely come back talk with you fellas. I enjoyed myself immensely. 
Awesome. And maybe by that time, I'll have the book out, and we'll find more to talk about. Yeah, it would, Heck it, yeah. It would be great to have you on, because you, you were with them through a, a lot of years, and we'd love to go over more stories in the future for sure. Totally. When that oh, book's yeah. ready, we'd love to help you spread the word about it. No problem. That's great. I appreciate that. See, I told you, what a great way to kick off Kissmas in July. Yeah, thanks so much to Big John Hart for coming on the show. I uh, hope you Kiss fans are happy that you finally got to hear from somebody that is a big part of history. Man, I am too. I'm blown away. Some stories were awesome. The, the Peter costume getting stolen, that that kind of really surprised me. Me too, and they got it back. Yeah. It's the awesome thing. I man. wouldn't have given it back. No, me neither. Forget it. And by the way, I did not threaten Paul Stanley. <laughs> I would have been three. Well, there you have it. This is the very beginning of Kissmas in July. It's just the tip of the iceberg around here. We've got all kinds of cool stuff coming up. Like we said, check out the website. They're celebrating Kissmas in July over there with all kinds of great articles and stuff. While you're at the website, hey, there's a donate button. If you feel like it, kick us a little tip. You know, we're we're kicking it out for you in July and all year round. But this time, it's a special time of year, and we've got some really good stuff coming up before the end of the month. While you're there, of course, you're checking out the articles. You're going to kick on the uh, HK Collectibles, Inc. link, and it's going to take you right there to the Amazon store. You're going to help us out that way. Anything you buy on Amazon, you go through our link at the website. You know what the one, decibelgeek.com. That's the place to be. You want to help us out, that's the best place to do it. Otherwise, like us on Facebook. Leave us iTunes reviews. We promise after Christmas in July, the insanity is over. We will be going back to iTunes reviews and reading them on the show because we appreciate them very much. So keep them coming. If you already did, don't worry. We're going to get them in when we when the, the celebration is over. We will. So, like I said, big stuff coming up next week. Don't miss it. This is Christmas in July, and this is the Decibel Geek Podcast. With one of the best savings rates in America, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Even easier than choosing Slash to be in your band. 
Next up for lead guitar. You're in. Cool. <laughs> yep, even easier than that. And with no fees or minimums on checking and savings accounts, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank for details. Capital One and a member FDIC. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.